Okay, Psalm 76. Psalm 76, I'm reading of course from the New American Standard Bible. The text says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem, or Salam. Uh, His dwelling place is in Zion. There he built He broke the flaming arrows, the shield, and the sword, and the weapons of war, Salah. You are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You, even you, are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was stilled. When God rose, arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth, for the wrath of man shall praise you with a remnant of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. You let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. For the choir director, stringed instruments. Psalm of Asaph, remember that heading goes... Uh, with each of these psalms from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. Uh, This one specifies on stringed instruments, but it also specifies it is a song. This is one of those 25% of the psalms or so that mention the instrument uh, specifically in some way. It's hard to characterize this psalm. Some call it a Zion psalm. Some call it a praise psalm. Um, but hard to put a clear indication on it. Um, how would we divide the chapter? Let's go stealth by stealth. The first three verses, in a sense, seem to stand alone. And uh, these verses uh, where it tells us about God's dwelling... And God dwelling in Zion. Now let's notice a few things here. In verse 1, the Bible tells us God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. Now we saw in 75.1 that His name is near. Here... In 76.1, his name is great. His name is great. His name is near. In 75.1, his name is great. What God is, is manifest in what his name is. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem or Salaam. Now, can you think, first of all, do you know what city that would be? And why would it be called Salem? Uh, what, where else do you see a city with that name in the Old Testament? Jerry Salem. That was what? Jerry Salem. Uh, okay. <laughs> Jerusalem. Yes, I believe it. I think because of its parallelism with Zion. Look at that. Now, can you think of another place where Jerusalem, or however uh, John said it, can you think of another place that it is simply called Salem in the Old Testament? Melchizedek in Genesis 14, verse 18. Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And both of these passages kind of help us to understand the other. Uh, First of all, the term Salem is used here. It's clear it's Jerusalem because it's used in parallelism 
with Zion. Very clear that this is talking about Jerusalem. Now, why did God call Jerusalem Salem? Well, Melchizedek is king of Salem. What does the New Testament say about that? He is king of Salem. That is king of peace. The word shalom is the word for peace. The word shalom. And I think there is a mention of simply Salem because in Hebrew it has the same three consonants as the word shalom. And so it's it's an idea of peace. And you notice right after he mentions this peace in 76.2, he talks about God breaking the flaming arrow, the the shield and the sword and the weapons of war. God breaks the weapons of warfare because God's tabernacle is in shalom, in peace, shalom, peace. Now, uh, also I would say, think about this just in context for how these psalms appear. Remember, Psalm 74 was a psalm lamenting and grieving the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple. That talked about sadness because the temple is destroyed. But here, the Bible tells us this is His tabernacle. This is His dwelling place. Now, the language that's used here of God breaking the weapons of war. God breaks the weapons of of war, you see that same idea in Psalm 46 and verse 9. Psalm 46 and verse 9. Uh, The text said there, it said, He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Psalm 46, verse 9. And you find this same idea a multitude of other places. For example, in Isaiah chapter 2, in verse 4, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's Isaiah 2, verse 4, and also Micah 4 and verse 3. The same kind of idea is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 10. It's found in uh, Zechariah 9, verse 10. Remember, your king is coming, gentle and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and uh, he will break your weapons into much of the language similar to what we read right here in verse 3. So, so God's name is great. God is the king who dwells in Zion, who dwells in the place whose name means peace. And God is breaking the weapons of war in two. God will ultimately reign supreme. I've stated this before, that on the United Nations building, there, is, there are those passages Isaiah 2, 4, I think they quote Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 instead of Micah 4, verse 3. But they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. But that is not going to be accomplished without God. It's not going to be accomplished by all the nations meeting together, talking about their difficulty. It's only going to be accomplished when God um, actively subdues all nations and brings them down. Now, in the midst of this, in verses four through six, four through seven, you see a description of God, of his nature and his character. 
a description of God, his nature, and his character. First of all, before we do that, any questions that you have on verse verse 1 through 3? Verses 1 through 3. Okay, verse 4. You are resplendent. What do some of your other versions have there? You are resplendent. More glorious. You are glorious. You are glorious. I think that the... Radiant? Radiant. I think that the NIV has resplendent with light here. You are resplendent. You are radiant. You are glorious. You are resplendent with light. More majestic than the mountains of prey. And that also, mountains of prey, is translated differently in versions. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep. And none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob... Both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Now, one of the reasons I say this emphasizes the character of God. Um, We have stated before... That when in Hebrew a separate personal pronoun is used, it is for emphasis. And that separate personal pronoun, you, for God, is used in verse 4 and it's used twice in verse 7. You, even you. Strong, strong emphasis. So this is telling us something about who God is and you are resplendent you are glorious you are radiant you are resplendent with light as Psalm 104 104 verse 2 states covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out heaven like a tent curtain So God is pictured as being like light there in Psalm 104 in verse 2. The Bible tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. 1 Timothy 6 and verse um, 16. In 1 John, the Bible uses the fact that God is light as an encouragement for us. To walk in the light. Uh, It's used light not only as a sense of his glory, but as a sense of his purity, his holiness. But God is resplendent. God is more majestic than the mountains of prey. It says, the stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into into sleep and none of the warriors could use his hands. Now, let me just read this um, here a second. Uh, the, the tents, when the text says, and you can see this uh, when you think about it, the stout-hearted were plundered. In, in Hebrew, this is a passive tense. And the idea is they let themselves be spoiled. They let themselves be defeated. Here these enemies have gone forth conquering and to conquer but they give up the fight because God has brought them down to victory. The bravest, the strongest, the stout-hearted, they are plundered. They are brought down. And uh, it says none of their warriors could use uh, their hands. 
And we'll see more about this in just a second in verse 6 and maybe a specific instance. It says, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, and God is referred to as the God of Jacob in 75.9 as well. 75 verse 9. At your rebuke, O Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into the sea. Now, when you think about a time... When this would be said about God, that rider and horse were cast into the sea, what do you think of? What time do you think? What event do you think of? Yes, the crossing of the sea. Listen to Exodus 15 and verse 1. The Bible says that Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. In verse 19, the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And then in verse 21, sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. So particularly at the Exodus, the act of salvation in the Old Testament, the ultimate act of salvation in the Old Testament. In the Exodus, God does this. The stout-hearted are plundered. It's as if they sank into a sleep and the warriors are unable to use their hand and God drowns the horse and the rider in the sea. This thing that calls forth praise to God and exalts God and glorifies God, this thing was an act of judgment. And so God is praised for His acts of judgment upon the wicked. And in verse, uh, verse 7, You even you are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence... When once you are angry. Now, I, I want to give you right now, we want to come back to this verse at the end, but this question, who may stand in your presence once you're angry? This idea of who can stand before God, in some ways, I think, is the question to which all Scripture points. And you see this question asked in Ezra 9 and verse 15. You see it in Psalm 130 verse 3. You see it in Nahum 1 and verse 6. You see it in Malachi 3. In verse 2, and you see it in Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17. Who can stand before Him? Everything in the text is leading us to respond, no one can stand before Him. Now, if that was the only answer in Scripture, though, what are we wasting our time being here for? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, further. But God is to be feared and reverent because His incomparable power humbles us all before Him. What thoughts do you all have right there? What questions or ideas? Makes me think of the, the 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 warrior, the soldier, and the horse being dead. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I I have a note where you know there's always the attempt to try to put this to some historical setting, and uh, some of it does make you think of what happened uh, during Hezekiah's reign yeah. against the Assyrians when. 
the angel of the Lord, you know, came against and killed 185,000. You do have events like that that illustrate uh, this kind of thing. Matter of fact, the Septuagint, John, uh, titles this a song for the Assyrians, making that link with Sennacherib's defeat in 701. Um, and uh, certainly that this defeat can be uh, linked with that, but it can be linked with the Exodus. It can be linked with several events in Israel's history. Um, so, anything else? That's a good idea. Um, I was thinking you were saying that God is due that great respect. Yes. And I agree with that, but at the same time, He gave men free will. And some men, either out of their ignorance or their pride, refuse to acknowledge God and, and fear Him. Yes. And Paul tells us in Philippians that we, sh- we should bow. Every knee should bow. As long as we're living, we have that choice. Yeah. The day is going to come when we come before God. There's not going to be any choice anymore. Everybody will bow. Yes, that's right. That's right. Better to make that choice now, voluntarily, than involuntarily at the end of time. Blessed are those who recognize that right here and right now. And um, I'm just sitting here trying to think of a good title for verses 8 through 10. And uh, let's read it again see if a title hits, hits any of us. You cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. Now verse 7 used the word feared. You, even you, are to be feared. And then in verse 8, the earth feared and was still. In verse 9, when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. For the wrath of man shall praise you with a remnant of wrath. You shall gird yourself. So God calls his judgment to be heard from heaven. God dwells in a certain sense, in a special way, in Salem or Zion, verse 2. But God's judgments come from the heavens. God dwells in heaven above and God dwells in Jerusalem in a special sense. And God calls his judgment to be heard from heaven. And when God's judgment comes from heaven, it has reverberations all through the earth. The earth feared and was still. The earth trembles in the presence of this awesome God. And the Bible says God arose. God arose for judgment. Now, this particular form of this particular word, arise. Uh, I believe it's used in each of these passages. It talks about God coming to save and God coming to judge. In Psalm uh, 9, verses 7 and 8. In Psalm 82, in verse 8. And, and, and right close to this, let's look back at Psalm 74, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 74, verses 22 and 23. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. Now, remember we made the point that the verb used in verse 22 to call upon God to arise is the same verb used in verse 23 where the Bible says that they rise against God. They rise against God. And he is begging God, arise in judgment against them. And God's coming is not just when God judges the wicked, it is also a way to save 
The humble, those who are humble, those who are weak, those who are afflicted are delivered when God comes to judge. They are delivered. They are rescued. Now, our word for saved here is that word that's part of Joshua's name. It's part of Isaiah's name, uh, part of Hosea's name. Uh, He's saving all the humble of the earth. In verse 10, the wrath of man shall praise you with the remnant of wrath. You shall gird yourself. The wrath of man, the wrath of man shall praise you. Is that translated? Because there are some questions. There's some questions about that in the translation. Do your translations have anything remarkably different there in verse ten? The wrath of man shall praise you. Well, the NIV says, surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise. So it kind of okay. flips it around. Okay. The, the New Living really is, I mean, is interesting. Human defiance only enhances your glory. Now that's what? Human defiance. I mean, what translation? The, the, well, it's the New Living. Translation. It's just what? Human defiance only enhances your glory. Yeah. Which, if that translation, the wrath of man shall praise you, if that translation is correct, I guess that would be an adequate summary. Right. But I want to tell you, I think it's better to have a text that sticks as closely to the wording Mm -hmm. and not simply then rephrases it, reshapes it. Uh, Because sometimes they're basing their reshaping they're rephrasing on a particular translation uh, that, that may be disputed. And I think it's good to read those things as a comment on the text more than as the text itself. But I want you to listen to this verse. By the way, I can remember a friend who's passed away one time calling me and asking about this verse. I think about that time every time I read it. Read it. <coughs> Proverbs 16.4 the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Even the wicked person somehow serves a purpose in the plan of God. Now we may revisit that verse later. But in verse 11, Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. He is feared by the kings of the earth. So he says, make vows to God, make vows, and fulfill them. Make vows to God and fulfill them. Where do you think of the statement, um, uh, to make a vow, be quick to fulfill it. Uh, well, Ecclesiastes 5. Yes, that's right. Ecclesiastes 5. I thought I didn't quote it well enough to recognize it. Good job. Ecclesiastes 5. See, if you're on your toes, you can recognize these quotes I'm getting people. Even if I'm just messing them up. And in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5, Deuteronomy 21, 23, verses 21 through 23. Who do we think of when we think of a person who made a vow and kept his vow? Who do you think of? Jephthah. Jephthah. He vows, I'll sacrifice the first thing out of my house. He comes, his only daughters, the first thing out of his house, sacrifices it. Probably expected his mother-in-law out first, but he gets his um, daughter out first and ends up sacrificing uh, her 
And um, I had a good line there. Nobody appreciated it. But, um, but <laughs> it's a, it makes it all the much better. Makes it all the better. But uh, make vows to the Lord and fulfill them and let all who are around him bring gifts to him and he will cut off the spirit of princes. He's feared by the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth are pictured as fearing God and bringing gifts to Him. Now, do you remember the picture in Psalm 2? Why are the nations in an outrage and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth Take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. Here they are opposing God. They are fighting against God in Psalm 2 in verses 1 through 3. But here they are fearing God. They are fearing God. As you see in Psalm 68 Psalm 68, verse 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Kings will bring gifts to you. This shows these kings that were in defiance and rebellion to God will submit. I don't know if it's like Gary is stating before, they're doing it involuntarily after a defeat of an enemy in battle. Uh, they're defeated in battle, but then they're involuntarily bowing in that sense. Or whether they've come to recognize the greatness of God, but voluntarily or involuntarily, they will bow. They will bow. Now, what other thoughts do you all have about the text? Things that we should mention. Anything? Okay, let's talk about. I was thinking about that one thing earlier when I was talking about the fear of God. You know, uh, even even the earth stood still. It just reminded me of the verse, "Be still and know that I am God." Yes. You know, we use that in a comforting sense for, <laughs> yes. for for our souls to be still and to not be anxious and to just. Trust in God that He's in control of things. Yeah, but I think of it in a different tech, a different sense in in the light of these verses here. Yes, things, yes. everything is still, even the earth, almost frozen in fear. Yeah, type of. Yeah, stone. it's not always a comforting thing. You know, you're right. It's kind of a. It's almost a paralyzed thing. It depends on your response to God, too. It's just like a lot of things. It, it depends on our response to God, whether it's a comfort or whether that's uh, a cause of terror. Think about if he was to come through the sky right now, what would your response be? Would you be glad to see him? Or yes, yes, that's, that's right. In fear? Yes. You, I, this has nothing to do with that, but you brought this up. Let me just... Make a tangent here. Um, my first year at, at college, we were, I was on what at the time, for what, what for 25, 30 years, was Florida College's last cross country team. Um, we were absolutely uh, a terrible. But I was the. Uh, I was the top runner on that terrible team. And they reinstituted the team 30 years later. I didn't want them to do that because I wanted to, you know, have some kind of claim to athletic fame. Uh, be the best runner on the last team. Um, though that I'm sure there was no, I, there was no record of any of that count. <laughs> but one day, it was early a Saturday morning, and we were running somewhere near the airport. And we were all laying down in this van, and we didn't realize where we were. And a plane takes off. And I thought to myself, this is it. <laughs> and I held out my hand to see if I was being changed. 
<laughs> so, but, but it does. If you think that moment comes, um, even you know, if you've lived your life in anticipation of it, it is a pretty overwhelming moment, uh, what I would say. Now, what are some things in the chapter that make you think of, of Christ? There, there, there are different things. And some of it is not a specific wording. Some of it is just kind of the trajectory of the whole script passage, the whole Bible. But um, anything that points you specifically to Christ. This one wasn't easy in that regard, was it? If you, if you all thought about it. Well, the okay. the idea of the warriors, uh, the stout-hearted, plundered, sank into sleep. Verse five, uh, they couldn't use their hands. Makes me think of the the re- response of those guarding the tomb. Ah, oh, that's good. Was, weren't they like dead men? Oh man, that is good. I never thought about that one. Uh, Seventy-six five. Um, is I think that statement is in Matthew 28 around verse 5. Someone look it up. It may be verse 4. If someone looks it up, Matthew 28 in verse, whether it's verse 4, I think, that it says that. It's verse 4. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is good. They shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Wow. Yeah, that is a good, uh, good yeah, comparison. Good comparison. And um, what else? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you, here's some of them I didn't realize before I started looking at the Greek translation here. You see, his tabernacle is in Salem in 76.2. And, and I forget the word that it uses for, for tabernacle in the Greek, but it says, it instead of saying Salem as a place, has in peace. And remember, as the Bible talks about Jesus, He's broken down the middle wall of partition, separating Jew from Gentile, and He is our Peace. What is said of this tabernacle or tent in Psalm 76 2 finds fulfillment in Jesus as peace who breaks down this distinction between Jew and Gentile. And also in the Greek, and this was in the Greek translation, and I abbreviate LXX is the abbreviation for the a major Greek translation, the Septuagint. And in 76.4, that translation begins with you are, or it may, it may say you give light. You give light. You are light or you give light is the way that begins. And the word that it uses for light is the word used in John 1 verse 9 when the Bible speaks of Jesus as the light who enlightens every man who comes into the world. He enlightens every man who comes into the world. And Christ brought life and immortality to life in the Gospel. 2 Timothy 1 in verse 10 in Revelation um, 22, verse 5, the word for light is used when the Bible tells us that the city has no need of light, for the Lord God is its light, and the Lamb is the lamp thereof. So, the same kind of language used there uh, can refer to Jesus. Now, also, uh, in the Greek translation, when the Bible says God saves the humble, God saves the humble, it uses a word for humble that only appears four times in the New Testament. 
One of those is a reference to Jesus as he's riding in uh, on the donkey in the triumphal entry in Matthew 21 and verses 4 and 5. He is humble, mounted on a donkey, the colt, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But also in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. In Matthew 11, verse 29, where Jesus says, I am gentle and humble of spirit. Uh, so it speaks of Jesus and the triumphal entry. It speaks of those who put their trust in Jesus. It speaks of Jesus as uh, the one who invites all to come unto him, come unto me, all who weary and are heavy laden. Um, okay. Now, I want to specifically go back to some of those passages we said we want to revisit. Um, in verse 7, you, even you, are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence once you are angry. <clears throat> Who may stand in your presence? And we stated in a lot of ways that is the question of the Bible. God is so holy. God is so awesome. God is so majestic. Who can stand before Him? In Psalm 130 verse 3 particularly says, Oh Lord, if you would mark our iniquities, who could stand in light of our sins? It's not just in light of how great He is, how small we are, but it's also in light of how pure He is and how sinful we are. Who may stand, who may stand in your presence? Well, listen to this in Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17. This is the sixth scroll is open. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Everyone is going to say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. That itself is a quote. From Hosea 10 verse 8. But they're going to say that. And the question is asked. Who is able to stand? Now. You may remember me doing this before. I, I do this occasionally. But. That question ends. Revelation 6. Who is able to stand? And in Revelation 7. We're going to find several people standing. In verse 11. It says. After I saw four angels. Standing. At the four corners of the earth. So the angels are mentioned in Revelation 7.1 as standing. In Revelation 7.11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. They are standing. But, but, but look at verse 9. Verse 9 of Revelation 7. After these things I looked and behold a multitude which no one could count from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Here is a great multitude who are standing. The question has just been asked, who is able to stand? And now we find a multitude who are standing. Notice in verse 13. One of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, those are the ones who are described in verse 9. Remember? They're clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands. Those who were clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. 
He said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who is able to stand in His presence? Those who have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ gives us an answer to this question. Who is able to stay? Who is able to stay, Gary? When the mob came to arrest Jesus, when in um, John 18, 6, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay. And they, they were the armed ones. They were the <laughs> soldiers and the, the ones with the authority. And yet they must have knew of him and knew of his fame and of the miracles. And yeah. they had enough fear mm-hmm. to wonder what was going to happen when they tried to arrest him. That kind of goes with, uh, with the, like the dead being there in John 18, 6. That's a good point, Gary. Uh, that yes, they, they, they fell back, they drew back, and fell down through fear. Uh, also, good point, yes. For, I think you're looking for 76.6 instead of 76.5. Is 76.6 or 76? Let's yeah, say 76. Six. Five. It, could, it could be, it's kind of in both, but okay. it specifically says in 6 they were like they were dead. Okay, okay, yes, that, yes that's right. That is right. So we yes, thank you. Um, also, let's look at seventy six ten. Wrath of man praises God. I, let me tell you about one of the most sickening long ways of events in the Old Testament to me. First Samuel twenty one twenty two. David's on the run from uh, Saul. Uh, Ahimelech, the priest, doesn't know all that's going on. David says, I'm on a secret mission from the king. says, we had to leave in a hurry. Do you have a weapon? Do you have any food? (coughs) And he takes showbread. Uh, He ends up going to Gath and acting crazy to get out of that. You remember some of that story. And uh, then in 1 Samuel 22... Um, Saul is whining, complaining. None of you are telling me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse and and uh, complaining about it. And Doeg the Edomite speaks up. And he says, I saw David inquire of Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech is siding with David against you. And Saul says, thank you so much. And they go down and they go down to Ahimelech the priest. He he. he calls Ahimelech to explain his actions. Ahimelech said, he's your son-in-law. Did I just start inquiring of him? I've inquired of God for him a lot of times. Who is as faithful to you as he is? What do you mean that I'm conspiring with him against you? He is your servant. I don't know anything that you're talking about. Even with all of that, which is true, Saul says to his men, kill him kill them. As wicked as Saul's soldiers was, they would not do it. But he says to Doeg the Edomite, kill them. And he does. He kills 85 of them. Abiathar escapes. That is the wrath of man. And yet, as wicked and as horrible as that is, It fulfills the judgment on Eli's house that God was going to cut off your house, Eli, because of your sin. 1 Samuel 2, 27. Some of the passages in play, particularly are 1 Samuel 22, 11-19. 1 Samuel 2, verses 27-36. Even 
Man's wrath served the purpose of fulfilling God's judgment. But if you want to talk, talk about the wrath of man praising God, as terrible as that sin was I just mentioned, the worst sin in human history ever was the crucifixion of Christ. You think about a perfectly innocent one who went about doing good. You talk about him not only being mistreated and imprisoned, but here is one who was killed. Joseph was mistreated and imprisoned. He wasn't killed. Jesus was killed. And Jesus was killed in the most prolonged and degraded way possible. And yet, everything happened according to the foreknowledge and plan of God. You with wicked hands crucified him, but it was all according to God's plan and God's foreknowledge that Jesus Christ was crucified. The wrath of man, man's greatest sin, man's highest wickedness fulfills the purpose and plan of God to bring salvation. Truly, our God can bring good out of the evil that we do. And then, in verse 12, he is feared by the kings of the earth. In Revelation 21. In Revelation 21 in verse 24. The nations will walk by its light. Talking about that city. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth sometimes had to pay homage to the king at Jerusalem. But this new Jerusalem, a city coming down from heaven, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into that city. Other things that you can see I missed, I'm sure there are. Can you pick out anything right here? I'm judging the world again. Yes. Yes. In, yes. All God judging the world uh, in verse 9. And God's judgment is, of course, a way to, to say. But just all the Bible leads us to the fact. I, uh, this is a question that I've asked. Um, some who were had the idea that the final judgment of man is 70 AD. Um, even if if we could if, couldn't convince you that there is a final judgment day specifically stated, do not all the judgment days within time, within history, point to a final judgment day at the end of history. I think it should. I think it should. Now, I do think there are passages that specifically refer to that, but that would be one idea I would have. Verse 11, um, gifts are brought. Yes, yes. Okay, very good. You, you can tie that in with Revelation 21. Uh, kings bringing their glory into it. And um, anything else? Well, I appreciate it, guys. Lord willing, we will not have class next week. It's supposed to be in... Um, Bowling Green. That's very, very weird. Yeah. <laughs> 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 for a preacher to say. Please, please do not come next week. I'm going to be embarrassed. As I got a note one night from John, 
oh, we're not having class tonight as he got here on a Tuesday night and uh, did not realize we weren't meeting. So, Lord, we won't. And so, could you let Ray know that, Becky? Uh, that we're not having class next week. So, um, Boyd, would you lead us in prayer as we close? Oh, Lord, you are resplendent, as the psalmist says. Thank you, God, for the psalms which teach us about you and show us your greatness, show us your majesty, show us how powerful that you are and yet how loving and kind and good that you are. Uh, You, even you, are to be feared, O God. We are amazed that we have the privilege to stand in your presence, to come to you in prayer, and we are thankful to be able to be your children. Thank you, God, for Jesus, who makes that all possible. Your great plan to save us from the evil that we have done, a sinless sacrifice for sinful men. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, who died so that we could be saved. Thank you, God. Thank you for our study tonight. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Take some and hand him something back. got five verses to cover these twelve. Savior like a shepherd lead us is the tune. Do me God the Lord is known in Judah great His name in Israel His Thou art fearful in thy mind. When the 
stand before thy sight. Have thy sentence sounded all the earth in fear was still. While to save the meek and lowly God in judgment wrought his will. In the wrath of man shall praise thee. What remains is kept from ill. In the wrath of man shall praise thee. What remains is kept from ill.